And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. The state of Oregon became the first uh, U.S. state to legalize physician-assisted suicide. And there's been roughly 2,200 people, as I understand it, who have taken advantage uh, of this law to end their lives. Uh, from the very beginning, uh, there, there was concern about how this law would be regulated, what kind of enforcement mechanisms would be in place, uh, would it be subject to abuse. Well, it's now, it's now happened that Oregon, which used to limit uh, the appeal uh, for assisted suicide to those who were citizens of Oregon, they've now removed the residency requirement. And what you can do is you can come in, apparently, from any state, uh, and begin seeking assisted suicide. That means, of course, that there will be uh, people from all over the country who will be going to Oregon to die. Uh, it's going to be a center for, I think it was National Right to Life Committee, uh, said it would become a center for assisted suicide tourism. Join me right now to take a look at this, the problems associated with physician-assisted suicide. We've got Dr. Stephen Doran. He's a practicing neurosurgeon in Omaha and a member of the state of Nebraska COVID-19 task force. He's ordained to the permanent diaconate uh, and is a bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. He and his wife, Sharon, have co-founded the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. Steve, good to have you back here. Thank you. Thank you, Al. It's good to be back. Talk to me about this situation in Oregon. This sounds to me, they have to know that Oregon will now become the place to go uh, to, to commit suicide. Uh, people all over the country will do that. Well, I mean, people in Oregon are denying that it, that will be the case, but I think history would bear differently. If you look at Switzerland, for example, which for quite a while has been a a destination location for assisted, sci assisted suicide and euthanasia. There's actually a study that was done in the journal Medical Ethics that showed in a five-year period, you know, there was like 600 people came to Switzerland from 31 different countries, you know, Germany, uh, Britain, United States even. And so I think it's naive to think that, that somehow Oregon's going to be different than a country like Switzerland, which yeah. has already demonstrated that... Um, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, physician-assisted suicide tourism. I yeah. know that sounds a little crass, but that's kind of what it what it turns out to be. So yeah. I, I think they're not being realistic, um, the advocates for assisted suicide, when they say, no, 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 no this isn't going to happen in Oregon. I just, I just don't think that's going to be the case. Uh, since Oregon's law was enacted, 2,159 people have died from ingesting lethal drugs, according to this news story I've got. Um are there any pr problems with regulating this? I mean, they've got to have some criteria uh, by who can receive these lethal drugs. Have they had problem with regulating this or keep or proper enforcement of the current law? Well, uh, yes, there have been some problems. Um, I don't know that they're readily admitting them. You're supposed to be over 18 years old and you're supposed to be making able to make decisions uh, you have to give a couple notices based 15 days apart you're supposed to have a disease that um is terminal within six months which is a really um that's a really difficult thing to say you know that right. to, 
be so precise to know that someone's going to die within six months. So right away you've got uh, some difficulties with this. There's actually uh, some studies that have been published um, that have demonstrated, for example, that um, this was in the British Medical Journal a, a little while ago, that one in four patients in Oregon had requested uh, physician aid in suicide were suffering from depression. And, wow. Um, wow. and that those who ultimately died from lethal injection, one in three met criteria for depression that should have been excluded by the Oregon Death and Dignity Act. So the, the Oregon Death and Dignity Act um, has, uh, requires someone to demonstrate they're of sound mind and thinking. And as we all know, that patients who are suffering from depression that is not adequately controlled are not in a position to make right. rational decisions for themselves. And so, so this is an independent study from the British Medical Journal of all places that found a substantial number of people in Oregon um, should not have been allowed to receive lethal medication. Yeah. So yes, there has been significant difficulty in, in regulating this already. Um, and to your point that you know people will be traveling potentially to Oregon, I think what might be as big of a problem, or maybe even a bigger problem, Al, is telemedicine. Now, oh, many of us are yeah. familiar with this now, um, especially during COVID, where because of, uh, you know, clinics were shut down and rural places didn't have access, a lot of medicine was being performed by either video or telephone. And it's really common for a physician to have uh, a license in, in an adjacent state. You know, I live in Nebraska. I was just across the river. I have a license in Iowa. I've got a lot of patients there. Mm-hmm. So with, with telemedicine, it is conceivable that the patient would not necessarily even have to come to Oregon to wow. receive assisted suicide, that the physician could Whew. have a visit over the phone with the patient in a state where he, is, he or she is licensed, interview them, and come to the conclusion that this person is a candidate for assisted suicide. This opens up a whole can of worms. Now, you know, there's no laws yet to, to, to regulate this part of it. You know, there's there's not a specific law that the person has to ingest the legal lethal um, drugs within Oregon now. If they're opened up, the the residency requirement no longer stands. What I mean, are they going to stay in Oregon to take the drugs right, and go right. back to another state? Yeah. So does that mean uh, an Oregon physician can now prescribe these medications to someone in Washington without even seeing the patient? It's a whole conundrum. And so, so if you look at just in a given state, if you look at the st- the states that border it and touch it already greatly expanded the scope of, of patients who would have access to, to lethal medications to end their life. Hmm. Is there any hint at this stage that uh, doctors who won't cooperate uh, with a patient seeking physician-assisted suicide, is there any indication that such doctors uh, would have difficulty from you know, the state medical association? There's been hints of that, I think, out in California in particular, whether whether those ultimately will bear up. You know, there still is, you know, hopefully some degree of conscious protection, but yeah. that is concerning, you know, and how that might also impact, you know, hospitals, Catholic hospitals and things like that. Well, while as yet I don't think there's been any case that's, you know, been, been uh, uh, determined against an individual physician or a hospital, there certainly has been rumblings to that effect that, that um protection of conscience is is at risk in this particular area. Yeah. Uh, I'm also wondering how, again, this whole idea of criteria, how many, I mean, do you have any idea what percentage of those who are seeking 
uh, suicide want to do so because, you know, their their life has become quite restricted and they feel as though they've become a burden uh, to others, uh, you know, family members. Uh, and so they feel the world is better off uh, without them. That's exactly right, Al. I mean, if you look at the – and Oregon publishes data every year uh, on this, and so you can look back year over year, and they, they talk about the, the symptoms that people were concerned about that brought the desire upon them to seek assisted suicide. And the vast majority of them um, reported loss of autonomy yeah. or, or difficulty in participating in activities that made life enjoyable, loss of dignity – you know, which are important things. I'm not trying to minimize those. are certainly losses, and, and, and we ought to and we should have, you know, profound amount of empathy for those, those types of symptoms, which are very, very painful and, and do create suffering. Interestingly, though, I think a lot of people, when you talk about death with people, they're worried about pain. You know, am I going to have uncontrolled yeah. pain? Well, that actually is a relatively small number of people who sought assisted suicide were concerned about pain or having um, uncontrolled pain. It's more, quite frankly, loss of autonomy, and which is why this the, the whole assisted suicide is just the antithesis to the Christian Catholic ideal of what, what a good death is. Yes. You know, a good death isn't one that's necessarily marked by lack of suffering or lack of pain. You know, St. Robert Bellarmine, a number of years ago, wrote a book called The Art of Dying Well, and, and, and while it you know, seems pretty simple, it's, it's very profound. I mean, if you the person who who lives well is the person who is going to die well. And as we know, life is full of suffering, yeah. and a good life isn't marked by no suffering. So living for Christ, living our, our lives to be in service of him, that's the mark of a good life. And that what that's what's going to be to a good death, the, the hope of the resurrection in heaven. You may suffer, you may not suffer. But whether you do or whether you don't, that's not what makes someone's death good or bad. Right. It's how you lived your life in, in service to Christ. I remember when I first began doing uh, radio, like a program similar to the one I, I do now, it was 1987, and uh, I actually did interview uh, Derek Humphrey, who wrote the book, uh, oh, it was earlier, he had written it long, long before I interviewed him, but it had to do with the passing of one of his wives uh, and taking her own life, or and he assisted her. But I, I remember at that time, the principal argument that was used was the pain argument, that you wouldn't want to see people, you know, in chronic, uh, uncontrolled pain. Uh, and then I don't remember when it was, about 10 years later, all of a sudden, it began to shift. Pain was no longer uh, as important. Actually, I think it was around the time when uh, Kevorkian, who I also interviewed, uh, Kevorkian was, was making the rounds, and his first patient, Janet Atkins, uh, was really concerned about loss of autonomy. And autonomy began to, loss of autonomy began to displace pain as the, leading reason people want to pursue suicide. I mean, that, that should make us a little suspicious, don't you think? I mean, it, when the rhetorical punch of the pain argument was lost, they shifted ground to autonomy. And uh, it should make us suspicious, it seems to me. 
Well, I would agree, uh, and that's a good point. But if you think about it, it's it, it's it's really kind of a reflection of our society as a whole, where where people no longer are in communion with each other like they once were, and so self sufficiency, isolation are are what are the hallmarks of our community, our culture anymore. And so when you lose that, when you lose your autonomy, that's a huge loss because our our culture is has gotten away from being in communion with each other. Hmm. Steve, thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to carry on this conversation further in a subsequent interview. Can we give you a call? Absolutely. Very good. Thanks so much. God bless. Dr. Stephen Doran, again, practicing neurosurgeon in Omaha, handles bioethics for the Archdiocese of Omaha.